Christian greetings to all of you this morning. It's a beautiful thing when God's people meet together to study God's Word. And I just want to bless you for being here. Uh, you young families who have uh, children to get ready and all that goes along with that. Uh, I bless you for the effort that you put into a weekend like this because uh, I know from experience it doesn't happen easily. But I'm blessed by your willingness to be here and to hear the word of God. In peace that only thou canst give, with thee, O Master, let me live. The peace of God that passes all understanding. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Peace is a beautiful and wonderful thing that cannot be bought with money. Peace is also something that does not, <laughs> uh, does not come in the same package uh, as the devil's tactics. No. When there is a lack of obedience and a lack of love for the Lord and a lack of sincere desire to follow Him, there's also a lack of peace. Lack of peace. But when we follow the truth of God's Word, and when that is our desire, God grants us a peace that is hard to explain, the writer says. And that's my desire for you this morning, that you can be a person that has the peace of God ruling in your heart and in your mind. This morning we're looking at the subject of the deceitfulness of disobedience. I believe this morning that deception is one of the most worn tools in Satan's toolbox. I say one of the most worn tools in Satan's toolbox. And for a springboard to the message, I invite you to Hebrews chapter 3 for a few verses as we get started here. Hebrews chapter 3 and verses 12 through 14. And I'm using these verses as a way of introducing this subject this morning because... In a nutshell, they capture the thrust of what we're looking at. The deceitfulness of disobedience. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Now, let's just note several things here in these, in these few verses. First of all, we have the problem brought to light. We have the enemy's tactic mentioned here, and that's the deceitfulness of sin. Note there in the last part of verse 13. Sin has also been defined as disobedience to the will of God. And so this morning... Uh, although the subject is, is titled, The Deceitfulness of Disobedience, one and the same is really the, the deceitfulness of sin. It's, it's together. It's the same package. And so we'll be using those terms interchangeably 
uh, the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of disobedience throughout the morning. And then we note the reality here. No one is immune to this. Verse 12, lest there be in any of you, lest there be in any of you, none of us are immune to this. We have the warning, and that is, take heed, brethren, watch out, stand guard against this. We have the end result, and that is in the last part of verse 12, and that is a departure or a separation from God. And we have the answer to this problem, to this tactic, you could say, and in verse 14, and that is holding fast to the truth. Or it says, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And so when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are coming to understand the truth in a new and clear way, in a way that we hadn't before. We are saying, okay, I am done with this. I am now going to build my life on the truth of God's word. And so that's where we start. The answer to dealing with the enemy's tactics is to hold fast to the truth. I also note another, another answer, another uh, part of holding fast, and that is, in verse 13, encouraging one another daily. Brothers and sisters, don't neglect assembling together. Don't neglect encouraging one another. It is, it is so, so vitally important to holding on to the truth to the end. We cannot live the Christian life on our own. We need our brothers and sisters. We need one another. We need that support. And never think that what you're dealing with is just your little problem. No. The temptations, the struggles that we face with are common to man. Yes, they are fleshed out in different ways in different people's lives but they are common to man. And I find it beautiful that when, that when I am willing to open up about something that I'm struggling with, when I'm willing to open up to a brother in the congregation about something that, that I feel like is, is working me over, it's such a blessing to hear that brother say, you know, Josh, I, I'm struggling with a similar thing. I know, I know how you feel. I've dealt with that too. And that brings such a, a strengthening to my life and to the brotherhood when there is that communication. Encourage one another daily. This passage here speaks of hearts that have been hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, boys and girls, maybe you uh, have, have got that chocolate syrup before that you put on your ice cream, and, and you squirt that chocolate on top of your ice cream, and it kind of goes... And in a few seconds or less... That chocolate just hardens on your ice cream. You like that stuff? I do too. It's good. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about a hardening that happens quick. No. It's not even overnight. Instead, the hardening that we're talking about is the result of a, a little by little, a carelessness here, a casualness here, a neglect indifference. It's the result of a lack of sensitivity to God's Word, a lack of sensitivity to the Spirit's still small voice, shrugging off those promptings that we had felt the other day. 
You see, so subtle is this process that uh, to us it's almost imperceptible. We just don't see it coming. Just a little neglect here. Just a little bit of disobedience here. Just a little indifference to, to that thought or that word of truth there. And after a while, dear people, we've grown so accustomed to sort of cutting corners, as it were, in our spiritual life or making little allowances for ourselves here and there that after a while, disobedience doesn't really seem so bad after all. It doesn't hit us like it did at one point. And we find ourselves living a, a life of defeat. We've been deceived. We've been misled. The devil has tricked us. He's caused us to believe a lie. Oh, we never intended to go there. Oh, no. We never intended to do that. But you see, little by little, this by this, and look where we're at. Really? But I never... Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. The deceitfulness of disobedience. The deceitfulness of disobedience. The truth is, all sin, all disobedience is deceitful. It always promises more than it performs. Sin deceives us by making false promises of happiness, of wealth, of popularity. You know, if, if you do this, you're going to look good. They're going to think better of you. Or, or if you give this, or the list could go on and on. Sin deceives us by making false promises. I found this uh, very thought-provoking here as I studied. Uh, Albert Barnes puts it this way. Sin assures us of pleasures which it never imparts. It leads us on beyond what was supposed when we began to indulge in it. The one who commits sin is always under a delusion. And sin, if one indulges it, will lead him on from one step to another until the heart becomes entirely hardened. Sin puts on plausible appearances and pretenses. It assumes the name of virtue. It offers excuses until the victim is snared. And then spellbound, he is hurried on to every excess. Now, if sin was always seen in its truest aspect when one is tempted to commit it, it would be so hateful that he would flee from it with the most utmost abhorrence. And, and someone else has said in reference to that, if sin were not masked, we would immediately see it as utterly horrible. Going on here from what Mr. Barnes says, sin deceives deludes and blinds. Men do not or will not see the fearful results of indulgence. They are deluded by the hope of happiness or of gain. They are drawn along by the fascinations and allurements of pleasure until the heart becomes hard and the conscience seared and then they give way without remorse. I noted that just a few days ago in my, in my uh, daily Bible reading, I'm reading in Jeremiah, and in chapter 6, it talks about a people who are, are, past, are past shame. They feel no shame anymore. In fact, it, the Scripture says there in Jeremiah chapter 6 that they don't even blush. They don't even blush when they do something shameful. They're so past that. Now, along with the fact that sin is always deceitful, it is also true that the end of sin is always death. 
The end of sin is all... Now, of course, the devil will never, will never tell you that up front. Certainly not. But the Bible makes it very clear. The penalty for sin is summed up in God's warning to Adam there in the Garden of Eden in reference to uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 2-2, we read, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And, and Scripture speaks about this many times. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes about being dead in trespasses and sins. Turn quickly to James, just a few pages back to James chapter 1, and note this progression here that we find. And this is a, this is a similar progression. We're going to find this progression throughout a number of uh, examples in Scripture this morning. James 1, verses 14 and 15 James write this, writes this, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. You see that progression? It starts with, it starts with me, does it not? It starts with my flesh. It starts with yielding to my flesh, yielding to the supposed happiness or the supposed reward or supposed whatever, that bait that the devil puts out there. The end of disobedience is always death. But once again, Satan keeps that well hidden in the hour of temptation. Satan keeps that well hidden in that moment. After all, Satan doesn't want us to flee from him. No. His real desire is that we fall for him. That's what he's after. You know, it's true that we commit sins for various reasons. But behind every reason is the influence and the work of that master deceiver. The one who is aware of our weaknesses and shortcomings. And he misses no opportunity to lead us into sinfulness. Uh, Satan is described as, in the Bible as being someone that's a being that's very busy, very busy. I found it interesting in noting uh, the first two chapters of the book of Job. Uh, there when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and who was tagging along with them? Yeah, Satan tagged along with them, and God said, Satan, where'd you come from? And Satan goes, oh, from going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. <laughs> I find that interesting. Going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. In other words, he's just busy. He's just busy. He, he says the same thing. We also read that in chapter 2 as well. Chapter 1, chapter 2, he says the same thing. Where have you been, Satan? What are you doing? Oh, I'm just going to and fro and walking up and down in it. Yeah, the master deceiver. You know, and every victim of sin, I think, can truthfully say, right along with Eve, that, that the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Now, before we look at a few examples of the disobedience, I'm sorry, the deceitfulness of disobedience uh, that we find in the Bible, let's just take a few moments here to expose the devil, okay? And I take great pleasure in that. I mean, this is, this is spiritual warfare, okay? And, and Satan, Satan would like us to, to not know these things, okay? He would like these things to be kept hidden. 
But we're going to spend a few moments exposing him a bit. Who is this one that we're talking about? What does the Bible say about him? Well, the Bible refers to Satan as the adversary of God and man. He is also referred to as the accuser and slanderer of God and man. There in Revelation we read that he is the accuser of the brethren. Night and day he accuses them. Actually, the, Satan means accuser. But think about, think about the fact that he accuses us. Satan is, is so prone to do that. He'll come to us and say, Oh, you think you're a Christian, aren't you? Okay. Why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep doing that? So you say you're right with God, but you did that. He just, just, just pinches us and just always, always accusing us. So why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? You think you're, you know what I'm talking about? He likes to accuse us. He likes to make us feel guilty. He likes to, he likes to stir up strife and stir up doubts, problems in our mind. He likes to rob us of our peace with God. The Bible refers to him as the prince of the devils, the prince of the power of the air, the angel of the bottomless pit, the dragon, the god of this world. Uh, he is likened unto a fowler, unto a sower of tares, a snake, a wolf, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's likened unto an angel of light. Now I would say here that most times when Satan comes to us, he comes to us as an angel of light. In other words, there's... There's an, appealing, there's an appealing aspect there. Right off, it's not that alarming, perhaps. He comes as an angel of light. Yes, he also is a roaring lion, but I would say that that roaring lion effect is more after he has come as an angel of light and he has deceived us into thinking this or that and he has bound us and then we are, we are held captive under his control and then he roars out his demands on us. You do that, you do that. And we find and people find themselves trapped and held in bondage to Satan who is a, a very demanding slave driver roaring out his demands upon their lives. The Bible describes him as being presumptuous, proud, wicked, malignant, subtle, deceitful, fierce, a murderer, a liar. The truth is, you could think of all the worst possible character traits that are known to men, and then you just sort of have a faint description of what Satan is. Just a faint description. The one we call the devil. And make no, make no mistake about it. His purpose is not to simply pick a fight with us. <laughs> no, that, that's really not his ultimate purpose. He doesn't just want to play with us. He doesn't want to just simply make life difficult for us. But his purpose, his ultimate purpose, is to destroy us. Note the passage there in John chapter 10 uh, where, where we read about the good shepherd. And Jesus talks about the good shepherd, and how the, which, which is really Jesus himself. He's describing himself. And he says, you know, the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. The good shepherd is one who cares about his sheep. He nurtures his sheep. He feeds his sheep. He gently leads his sheep. He cares about their life. He wants to give abundant life. But what about that thief? You see, the thief is sneaky. He doesn't come in the regular way. He slips in the back door, over the fence. The thief comes not 
but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's the devil, the one who is trying to destroy the sheep. But Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and more abundant life. Perhaps one of the primary ways, if not the primary way, that Satan accomplishes, accomplishes this and accomplishes his work in our life is by wearing us down, by wearing us out. Uh, it's, it's called the method of gradualism. The method of gradualism. In one of Watchman Nee's books, he explains the work of the devil like this. He says, Satan has, in fact, a plan against the saints of the Most High, which is to wear them out. What is meant by this phrase, wear out? It has in it the idea of reducing a little this minute, then reducing a little farther the next minute, reduce a little today, and then reduce a little tomorrow. Thus, the wearing out is almost imperceptible. Nevertheless, it is a reducing. The wearing down is scarcely an activity of which one is conscious, yet the end result is that there is nothing left. He will take away your prayer life little by little and cause you to trust God less and less and yourself more and more, just a little at a time. He will make you feel somewhat more clever than before. Step by step, you are misled to rely more on your own gift and step by step, your heart is enticed away from the Lord. Now, were Satan to strike the children of God with great force at one time, they would know exactly how to resist the enemy since they would immediately recognize his work. But he uses the method of gradualism to wear down the people of God. There's a lot of truth in that. He uses the method of gradualism to wear down the people of God. Let's note now a few examples of the deceitfulness of disobedience that we find in the Bible. You can turn to Genesis chapter 3 for a starting point. But I want you to consider two things as we're going through these examples this morning. Think about these two things. First of all, our disobedience always affects others. Our disobedience always affects others. The devil would like us to think, it's just you. No one else will know. It's not going to bother anyone else. It's not a big deal. That's a lie. That's a lie. Secondly, then, keep this in mind. Disobedience always causes substan substantial loss. Disobedience always causes substantial loss. You know, it all started in a garden. <laughs> Who would ever think that something like this could go wrong in the perfect garden of Eden? Who would ever think so? But yet, Satan is the master deceiver. The scripture also refers to him as the father of lies. And you know, things can go bad in church, too. People sin in church, too. <laughs> Not that, we, not that we intend to or want to, but I sinned in church a few weeks ago. And it was, it was, it was, well, I confess to the congregation, that was very humiliating, I must admit. And yet we never plan to. We never plan to sin anyway, do we? <laughs> you, don't, you don't plan to sin. And yet, the master deceiver 
there's no place that's not too perfect for him. He'll find his way into this place and that place. It all started in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, here's kind of that classic story where these things started. Let's just note the first six verses here. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Did God really say... Is that what God really said? You probably just took it wrong. He probably didn't mean it quite like that. You will not surely die. <laughs> you probably misunderstood him. Satan caused Eve to question God's rule. Satan caused Eve to question God's message. Now, if you just note back in chapter 2, verse 17, we read and we find out for sure what God's message was. And that was, God said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Okay? Pretty straightforward to me. But Satan caused Eve to doubt God, to discard the truth. With this question and that question, and, and, you know, we read this and, and it looks like maybe it happened just boom, 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 and, you know, one minute we have verse 5 and, and the very next minute we have verse 6. It might have not happened quite that fast. I can imagine between verse 5 and verse 6, there was some thinking going on in Eve's mind. Okay, let's think through this. There was some pondering that she was doing. But Satan caused Eve to question God's message and to go on down the line until God's will was simply ignored. All of a sudden, God's word was ignored. I say, are you kidding me? I mean, what a bold and blatant disobedience. It seems so obvious to me, does it not? But you see, Satan did not start right there. <laughs> no, he didn't start right there. He started by explaining away God's Word. And that's exactly what he does today, dear people. He makes disobedience seem quite logical. Okay, I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, that's probably what he meant. That's probably what he meant, yeah. That, I mean, God, why would God ask me or require me to do that? Yeah, I think he probably meant that. You see what I'm saying? We start thinking through it. And all of a sudden, disobedience seems pretty logical after all. Dear people, when God says no, that trumps all the pros we can think of. That's where it should stop. And you know the rest of the story. Adam and Eve were, were banished from that beautiful garden. There was sorrow, there was death, and that trickles down to us today. 
Let's move along to another example in Scripture. And, and you can turn if you want. We won't read through this, but uh, we might just note a, a verse or two. And that's in Joshua chapter 6, uh, six and 7. Uh, here we have the story of the sin of Achan. The sin of Achan. You remember now that they had, they had just come through uh, experiencing a great victory over Jericho. Now prior to that, prior to that, God had said, and we read this in chapter 6, uh, verses 18 and 19, God had said, don't take of the accursed thing. It's going to trouble the camp of Israel. It's going to make it a curse. Don't take it for yourself. Now, there are certain things they said to take and to put it into the house of God. Those are consecrated to the Lord. But don't take of the accursed thing. It's going to bring a curse on the camp. Okay, so they experienced that uh, wonderful and, and amazing victory there at Jericho. And then they move along to a much lesser and much easier project, and that is overtaking Ai. Well, this should be no problem at all, right? I mean, they just, they just whooped the, the people of Jericho, and, and this is just a few little people. So they sent a few guys up there, and they experienced a very embarrassing defeat where 36 good, strong men were killed. 36 men. 36 homes suffered, and God's people suffered in a great way. The name of God was reproached. And Joshua cried out desperately to the Lord, God, what is wrong? What is wrong? What happened? You just brought us through this amazing victory, and now what have you done? What has happened? And God said, there is sin in the camp. There is sin in the camp. And you will not find victory until you rid yourself, until you remove that sin from the camp. And along with that, he said, I will not be with you anymore unless you rid yourself of that sin. I wonder, dear people, how often there are those who believe that God is with them, who believe that they are operating under the Spirit of the Lord, and yet God is not present because there is sin that has not been dealt with in their life. And we're going to note that in the next, in the next example. And we think that we can do this in the name of Jesus, and we think we can do that, and we think we can call ourselves a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and we know full well that there is a problem in our life. We know full well that there are issues that we are not willing to touch. And at the same time, we wonder why we just can't overcome this, and why we can't overcome this, and why are we having trouble with this, and we just can't seem to get above it, and yet there's things in our life that we don't want to deal with. God says, there's sin in the camp and you will not find victory and my presence will not be with you until it is gone. Well, the story goes on and they, they called out this tribe and they moved down to this family and moved down to this household and they found Achan and his family. And I would just like to note, if you are looking this up, note in, in chapter 7, uh, verse 21, Achan's confession. I want you to note this progression. What did Achan say? First of all, he did acknowledge his sin. He did acknowledge his sin. That doesn't mean there's not consequences, okay? He acknowledged. But verse 21, we note, and I'll just speak it summary here. He said, I saw 
I coveted, I took, and I hid. That sounds a lot like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. They did some hiding, too, in the Garden of Eden. And you also know the rest of the story. That meant death to Achan. That meant death to his family, to his boys and girls, to his wife. It didn't just affect Achan. That affected all of those around him, his livestock, his possessions. In fact, Scripture says everything that he had was destroyed. And you think a little disobedience isn't a big deal, as if God has changed or something. Let's move on. Judges chapter 13. Here we have the story of Samson. The story of Samson. <clears throat> and I'll note here that, that Samson had a very good beginning. Now we'll just, we're just going to skip through this, a few chapters here, not doing much reading, but just sort of telling the story somewhat. But in, in chapter 13 of Judges, we have where the angel of the Lord came to, uh, to Samson's parents and, and they told them what was going to come to pass and what a, what a joy that was for them. And note verses 24 and 25. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew and the Lord blessed him. Okay, this is great. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtel. Okay, so it's a good beginning here for Samson. Things are looking up. But immediately we move into chapter 14 and we immediately note some weaknesses. We note some problem areas right off. Note the first three verses. Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and he told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Samson, is there never a woman uh, among the daughters of thy brethren or among all my people? Are there no girls in the, in the Mennonite church <laughs> uh, that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Now there's several things that, that stand out to me right off. First of all, there's a lack of submission in Samson's life. A lack of submission. There's also a lack of respect uh, for the authority that God had placed over him. We also see that Samson was looking for companionship among the Philistines apart from God's known will, apart from God's perfect will. Now, I, I, I acknowledge that verse 4 says... His father and his mother knew not that this was of the Lord. I, I realize that. However, that was not God's perfect will for Samson, for his people to go marrying outside of, of, the, of the Israelite camp. God had made that clear. That was God's perfect will for them to marry within their camp. God permitted this. But Samson chose to go outside of what God's perfect will was for him. And his parents were aware of that, and they said, Samson, we encourage you, please, don't do this. Are there not, are there not good girls among us uh, that you could marry? Certainly there are. Samson said, no, she pleases me well. I want her. 
You see, you see some attitudes here in Samson's life. And then in, verse, in chapters 14 through 16, we have a very sad account of a man who was oh so very strong and yet oh so very weak. Oh so very weak. And, and we have these various character traits showing up in his life time and time again. Uh, you see anger. You see retaliation. You see dishonesty, which... Uh, we're going to note that just a little later, but dishonesty is a part of the package that comes along with deception and disobedience. You have dishonesty. You see these character traits in Samson's life. Notice in chapter 16 how that chapter starts. We have a, a very dark picture of Samson spending the night with a prostitute. And then we move on down through that chapter of where... Delilah is trying, to, <laughs> is trying to find his secret out. What is the secret of your strength, Samson? And the Philistines are working with her, and they're, try they're trying to, 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 to get her to trip Samson up. And Samson's playing with her, you know, and, and, and he's you know, telling her some fibs here, and, and he's not coming out front with her, and, and it's, it's just a real circus, okay? Um, and it finally comes down... After finally giving in to Delilah's deceitful nagging, Samson finds himself completely helpless. He finds himself powerless. He finds himself trapped. And I want us to note verse 20. Dear people, it's a very, it's a very sad picture. Note verse 20. So this is at the very end here where, where he finally spoke the truth. And Delilah said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as other times before and shake myself. In other words, I'm going to do this thing again. It's no big deal. What do we read? And he knew not that the Lord was departed from him. He knew not that the Lord was departed from him. I find that very sobering. How many people are out there today thinking that they can go out in the power of the Lord? Knowing full well that they have not been up front with God. Knowing full well that, that they have not lived up according to God's standard. But they think they can go out in the power of the Lord. They think that things are okay. They've been deceived, brothers and sisters. And they know not that God's Spirit has actually left them. Samson has been deceived, and ultimately it cost him his life. Now, if you have, if you have uh, something to, to, to jot down a reference, I'm just going to give you one reference. We'll move on to one more illustration in this, in this session yet. But let me just give you one reference. You can look at this one on, on your own sometime. Uh, first, first Kings chapter 13 is another good illustration of the deceitfulness of disobedience. Uh, we have there, I'll just mention very briefly, we have a man of God who started out by doing God's will, and then he went to doing nothing until he was deceived, then he disobeyed, and it resulted in his death. Let me just note, he went from doing God's will to doing nothing. Dear people, that is a dangerous place to be when we find ourselves doing nothing in our spiritual life. We are setting ourselves up for a serious fall.
I once had a brother that came to me and was confessing in, in, in tears, a big, strong brother, was confessing his weaknesses with pornography. And, and he was saying, you know, he really doesn't have an excuse, although it was in a time when he was very, very busy with his work, and he was stressed out, and things weren't going well, and, and life was just so difficult, and, and he wasn't having time uh, to read God's Word. He wasn't, well, he wasn't taking the time to read God's Word, his prayer life. He said, I was just in survival mode. Let me tell you one thing. Many Christians don't make it in survival mode. Survival mode is a terrible place to be for the Christian. Yeah, he wasn't finding time to read his Bible, but he had time to search out pornography. Go figure. Well, this, this man of God here went from doing God's will to doing nothing. And at that moment, Satan was just right there. Right there. And that led to his... His death. Let's note one more illustration yet. <clears throat> Turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, and this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I would like to call this little illustration disobedience to the brotherhood agreement. You could look at it different ways, I suppose. Disobedience to the brotherhood agreement. Now, what was that agreement? Well, let's note a few verses here in the last part of chapter 4. Uh, verse 32, chapter 4 of Acts. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Uh, note verses 34 and 35. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he is need. Okay, that was the understanding. That was the brotherhood agreement. It's interesting to note that chapter 5 starts with this word, but, in other words, uh, we've got something different going on here, okay? <laughs> but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back a part of the price, his wife also being privy to it or having full knowledge of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay. Now, as I understand it, the people were not obligated to sell, their properties. They were not required to sell their properties. Yeah, some did. Some certainly did. But it was understood that if you do sell, you give the money. That was an understanding. Let's note here, verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart, that thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God? Okay, take, so, let's just, let's just say that, that they sold their property for $15,000, okay? And Ananias came to Peter and said, Morning, Peter, how you doing? Great, great, doing well. Okay, Peter, we sold our property the other day, and here's the money. And he gives him $10,000. Here's the money. 
Will the Lord bless you, Ananias? Yes, thank you, thank you. Yeah, long live the church. Yeah, okay, all right. And, and time goes on, and, and uh, we see here that, that Peter made it clear what you did wasn't necessarily wrong except you broke the agreement. You are being deceitful. You are being dishonest. You are not being upfront about what you're doing. You're trying to keep something behind the door. And we see that in verse 4. Verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it also about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me, whether ye sold the land for so much? And she said, Yeah, that's how much it was, Peter. Then Peter said unto her, How is it? that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then, sh then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. Note two things here especially. There was, there was intentional deception in this story, and we see that in verse 2. Ananias knew it. His wife had full knowledge of it. They were holding back part of the money, but making it very clear that this is what, this is what it was, but yet they had full knowledge. Intentional deception. We also see that there was lying involved in this story. There was lying to cover it up. In verses 3 and verse 8, verses 3 and 8, we note here that Peter made it clear that they were not just simply lying to Peter, but this was a great offense. They were lying to the Holy Spirit. Think about that a moment. Perhaps that will give you some food for thought when you are tempted to be dishonest. We have deception. We have dishonesty. And along with that, I'm sorry, we have deception, we have disobedience, and a part of that package comes dishonesty. To try to cover it up. To try to cover it up. And what was the result? It was death in a very astounding kind of way. They were listening to the father of lies. They were giving place to the devil. Now, we'll close here for this part. I just want to note as we close, the similar progression that we saw in each of these illustrations. First of all, there was generally a good start in each of these illustrations. A good start. And then comes a temptation. And then there's a thinking it over. There's a listening to Satan. There's an openness to what he has to say. Instead of slamming the door, there's a, huh, a pondering. To the point where disobedience seems logical. Then there's a lack of sensitivity to the conscience, a lack of sensitivity to the Spirit of the Lord. And you know that in your own life. You know what that feels like when there's something, when you're struggling with something, and that little voice comes in and says, Really? Really? You know, you know. There's a lack of sensitivity to that. And then there's a taking the bait, and there's a paying the price. The Scripture says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Neither give place to the devil. Instead, 
Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Brothers and sisters, the power is available to overcome. The power is available. It comes by drawing nigh to God, by seeking the Lord, by looking to Him for strength, for direction. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Thank you, Father, once again for the truth of Your Word. And Lord, I pray that You would work in our midst this morning. If there are strongholds here uh, this morning, if there are areas of failure, if there are areas of sin that are not being dealt with as they ought, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit you would prompt and, and nudge. Help us to be out front with you, Lord. Help us to make that commitment with you once again to build our lives on the truth and to be active in this fight, in this, sport, in this spiritual warfare. Father, I pray your power and strength among us this morning. May your people be encouraged and challenged. May you receive honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.